Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. Today's topic is both a sensitive and really important subject, but please note that some of the content may disturb some listeners. Today's episode is going to be all about sexual violence in speculative fiction. Hi Sarah, really happy to have you here today. Would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure, yeah. Um, So my name, as Nian said, is Sarah Gailey. I am uh, an author. I live in Oakland, California. I write nonfiction for Tor.com. It's also been published in Mashable and the Boston Globe. And I write fiction. Um, My debut novella, River of Teeth, is coming out from Tor.com in May of 2017. And my publisher and agent would remove my head from my body if I didn't tell you that it is currently available for pre-order on Amazon.com. And you should go buy it. But now I've said that, they'll let me live. <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely go and buy it. It was after reading your article on Tor.com, Do Better, Sexual Violence in SFF, that I really wanted to speak to you about this subject. Could you give our listeners a brief introduction to the issue at hand? Sure. Um, I, you know, in talking with other female writers especially, and just, you know, good friends of mine who read the same things that I do, I started to notice a trend, which is that any time that a female character, especially in genre fiction, needs character development, um, she's sexually assaulted. And I decided to, you know, get, gather a little bit of anecdotal evidence and just looked through all of the books that I had read so far up until that point. And I found that a humongous proportion of them included sexual violence toward the female protagonist. Um, I whittled it down to you know, only sci-fi, sci-fi and fantasy novels with female protagonists. And it was, it became difficult to find examples in which there was no sexual violence toward the primary female character. And the issue, as I identified it, is that, you know, it, it becomes kind of a, a default setting, I think, for a lot of writers to expose their female characters to sexual violence and say that's what makes them who they are. Yeah, I mean, and and there's been controversy with things like Game of Thrones where that's certainly happened. You know, Sansa didn't get sort of agency or any kind of drive as a character until she experienced sexual violence. Exactly. And I mean, there is certainly... uh, I've become frustrated easily with Game of Thrones because sexual violence seems to be... Uh, almost a reflex in that world. And, you know, no no shade on George R. R. Martin. He does a fabulous job and has written an amazing world. Um, but it is kind of a flagship work of sexual violence toward women. Do you think there's anything sort of in the tropes? So, I mean, you were talking about how you, you limited it to science fiction and fantasy, but is there anything, you know, inherent in these these tropes of these genres that sort of give rise to this or...? You know, I think it's I think it's prevalent pretty much everywhere. I read so much more genre fiction than literary fiction that I didn't feel comfortable discussing that uh, literary fiction in my article. And also because, you know, I'm writing for Tor.com. So yes. yeah. you kind of want <laughs> to <laughs> stick to what you know. But I don't think that it's necessarily something intrinsic about science fiction and fantasy. And actually in the article, um, as you may recall, I challenge science fiction and fantasy writers to say there's something intrinsic to the genre that makes it to where we shouldn't have to do this. Um, You know, everybody's argument is, oh, we need to reflect real life. 
But really, when you look at genre fiction, that's not what we're about. We're not writing in order to reflect real life. We're writing to paint new worlds and new social norms. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things, certainly when I sort of was growing up, Star Trek original series was just one of my absolute favorite things ever. And <laughs> I mean, obviously, you look at it now and yeah, okay, it's a bit heavy handed in some of the um, the ways that it sort of comments on um, society at the time. But for me, that was part of what made me fall in love with SFF was this idea that we could use alternate settings, alternate worlds, this complete fictional scenario to comment on the the problems within our society. And it seems odd to me that people aren't taking more of an opportunity to do that when it comes to you know sexual violence against women, because that is a problem in the real world. We know that. And why can't we find worlds where, you know, that that isn't a problem and actually see how much better it is or you know, make a comment on it in a, in a different kind of way? You know, why why does it always just seem to be reinforcing what is the world that we have now? Yeah, it's, I think you hit it right on the head. Um, one series that I really love and, uh, you know, it has its problems, of course, as they all do, but a series of books that I really love are the Cushiel's Dart series by Jacqueline Carey. And in that world, uh, sexual assault is anathema. It's, um, you know, she's, she's done some fabulous world building where there is a religion that's based around kind of consent and mutual trust and affection. And in that world, she does a fabulous examination of, what does that mean about sexual assault? Well, that makes it to where it's a heresy and it's treated accordingly. Now, of course, there's still sexual violence in the book, but I think it's exactly what you're saying. It's treated as an examination and as something different, as opposed to just saying, well, you know, human beings have uh, carbon-based bodies and require oxygen to survive and women are going to be sexually assaulted. Yeah, I mean, this is something we've we've talked about previously on the podcast is this idea that, well, not really the idea, but the, the fact that we keep seeing, you know, SFF works where, you know, they're inventing entirely new worlds, and yet they're still giving us the same gender dynamics, the same issues we see in our world. And it's like, why, when this entire genre is, is all about the imagination, can we not imagine a world where women are equal or you know why why yeah. is that impossible for us to do I mean I I'm oh, I'm kind of torn between you know if I'm not giving much benefit of the doubt then I say it's lazy I say you know it's just people and I do I do believe this that people will kind of write how they have seen things written you know you can get creative to an extent but I think people tend to fall back on writing the way that they have seen other people write, which is why you end up with these tropes that don't make any sense, but that just keep on happening because you read a bunch of books that say, you know, you describe this person, this kind of person using this kind of language, and then you reuse it. Um, that's if I'm giving the benefit of the doubt. If I'm not giving the benefit of the doubt, then I would say it's because there are a lot of people out there who can't fathom a world in which women aren't sexually assaulted due to something intrinsic to us. Um, and I do want to also say this is not to erase sexual assault of men and non-binary people. 
Um, but that wasn't the focus of the article. And there are people out there who can speak much better to those issues than I can. So I'm trying to stay in my lane a little bit on that. But I do want to acknowledge that that's also certainly an issue. I mean, what does it say, you know, that um, when it comes to, you know, the, the kind of character motivation um, in these stories that we're, we're finding authors so heavily reliant on using sexual violence as a way to get female characters to act, you know, you know, um, <laughs> men in these stories can, you know, fight to get their kingdoms back. They can, you know, avenge their families. They can do all these sorts of things, but women seem to only ever be motivated by restitution for sexual grievances. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. That drives me completely bananas. You know, you see these men who have these super well-developed backstories and it's like, oh, their entire family was murdered or their land was taken away or they just are so loyal to their kingdom and country. And then if a woman needs to act at all, then it's got to be, you know, right behind the wheel driving that story forward. <laughs> it drives me nuts. I think it speaks to this concept that a lot of people have that sexual assault is the worst thing that can possibly happen to a woman. It's something that I hear people say all the time, you know, you've ruined this woman's life. Um, she's never going to be the same. She's never going to recover from this. It's the worst thing that could ever possibly happen to her. And it's, I mean, it's very bad not to downplay that at all, but I think it doesn't give women much credit for having other things going on other than, you know, being a receptacle for sex. Yes, quite. They have just as much um, you know, invested in their country and their family and, you know, whatever else that the men in, in these stories can be upset about. You know, they have just as much going on with that. Exactly. And I think there's kind of an underlying narrative there of where a woman's value lies. Right. If a woman, if her life is ruined, it sort of speaks to this idea that she has been ruined and that sexual assault has degraded her value as a human being. If you take away that idea that sex is what gives a woman value and that her, you know, especially her virginity is the thing that gives her value, then sexual assault isn't the worst thing that can happen to her. It's a very, very bad thing that can happen to her. And the worst thing that can happen to her could be far worse than that if you put any thought or effort into it as an author. I feel like they often use, again, you know, the sexual violence to show that a female character is vulnerable, especially if they're doing, you know, oh, yes, it's a really strong, powerful female character. Oh, but she is vulnerable because she can still be raped. You know, yeah. and... I just, I don't understand why writers still rely on that. I mean, do, do you have any thoughts on why they're relying on that rather than something else to show that these strong female characters are still vulnerable? Okay, so the reason that um, authors keep on using rape to show that strong, powerful women are still vulnerable, I don't know, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, there's the idea that in order to be a strong woman, you can't be vulnerable. And so you have to reveal that vulnerability instead of just letting it be that she's both at once. Um, you know, I think we as a culture, as a Western culture, really struggle with the notion that a woman can 
be herself and be strong as opposed to it being some, you know, armor shell that she's putting on. I think there's also in some contexts, I don't know, it feels like a very misogynist satisfaction in a narrative when a strong woman is forcibly made to be vulnerable, right? Because vulnerability in my mind doesn't come from being broken down. It's a strength. It's something that, you know, you choose to reveal part of yourself um, and yes. share part of yourself with people. Yeah. Just, I, I, I'm thinking of cats right now. Like they let you, <laughs> when they want to, you know, they're vulnerable when they show you their stomachs and they only let, you know, the people they really love and trust to give them a, a tummy rub. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's a very good analogy for, for this situation. Um. But I mean, I, I always think of, gosh, I'm not going to get too specific with it because I haven't read these comic books in a long time. And I know people are very passionate about getting it right. But The Walking Dead, um, and I don't know if they did this in the show as well, but spoiler alert, this is a little ways in. In The Walking Dead, they go to this community and it turns out to be, you know, a horrible place and everyone is getting tortured and everything is bad. Surprise, in The Walking Dead, there's a part where everything is bad. <laughs> but there's this very strong female character. I believe it's Michonne. And she's, you know, tied up and broken down and raped again and again and again. And I just, that was when I stopped reading the series because I remember getting to that part and asking myself why the people who wrote that comic book decided that this was what needed to happen to this very strong, very competent woman. And it felt, you know, a little masturbatory in a way that I don't want to participate in. Not that these writers are perhaps thinking about this, but is it also saying something about men that they can't imagine a world where men wouldn't want to rape, which, I mean, I love men. There are wonderful men in the world. And most of them don't want to do such things. So why is it also that we can't imagine a world where they wouldn't want to do that? I think that's such a central part of toxic masculinity. Whenever I, whenever I talk to, you know, budding male feminists who are dipping their toes in and saying, I don't know if I'm a feminist, but I really want to support women. But, you know, I also don't hate men. It's this thing that, you know, a patriarchal culture forces on men is this notion that you're an animal, you're not in control of yourself, um, you can't be trusted around women or children, and you are just a brute. And I, I know so many men who say, you know, not all men are rapists. And then in the same breath, they'll say, but also you have to be careful what you wear and where you walk because, you know, men can't control themselves. I think that even if a man in his heart knows that he would never, ever, ever sexually assault a woman, he would never do it. He's so about informed consent and he thinks about it and he asks about it and he talks about it. I think there's still this message that he's getting pretty consistently from society that says, if you lose control for just one minute, then you're a rapist. And I think it, when you're writing a narrative, especially for me when I'm writing a story, and you want to have big emotional impact, having people lose control creates that emotional impact, right? 
Mm. Um, you want to see someone get really angry and yell and break something, or you want to see them cry, or you want to see them freak out and run away from a situation, or you want to see them get into a fight. And I think part of that narrative of losing control in a Western patriarchy is a man committing rape because he can't control himself for whatever reason. I think a lot of male villains, especially when written by a guy who considers himself pretty progressive, are threatened by strong women, right? Yes. And when you feel threatened and you lose control, you're going to lash out and try and take that thing down. So that was a very long way of saying, I think that that theme of strong women being raped is just an immense reflection of the way that our society holds men down and says, not only can you not handle your emotions, not only can you not control your sexual urges, but also you can't handle being around a strong woman without needing to let those emotions out in order to take her down. Yeah, exactly. So that, you know, this problem is not just a problem for women, it's a problem for men as well. Absolutely. And it's when you get into articulating that, I think that is how we deconstruct a lot of people's fears about feminism. I don't know if you could tell, but I'm a feminist. (laughs) (laughs) So am I. (laughs) That's shocking. And I think so many people are saying, oh, well, why isn't this also for men? But when you get into it, it is. Because the kind of society that tells men that they have to rape strong women in order to ensure that those women are still vulnerable is not a society that's in favor of those men. Yeah, I'd agree with you there. All right. um, One thing that really interested me in your article, you talked about how physical abuse against women is a taboo. And we kind of see that in society that, you know, you can't, can't hit a woman, but sexual violence is okay. And I just thought that was just really interesting. And, you know, you're quite right in that I, I see far more sexual violence against women in, in these narratives than I do physical violence. Well, obviously, um, sexual violence is also usually physical violence as well. But if you take that sexual aspect right. away. And, yeah, that's just really interesting. And I wondered if you could elaborate on that. Yeah. I mean, it's when you think about a scene that involves sexual violence, sexual violence um, in a novel there is usually some physical violence, right? Somebody gets slapped in the face or they get held down or they get choked and they're going to have bruises. It's so rare to see scenes in which there is just physical violence by itself against a woman. Unless the writer is writing some, you know, uh, like an abusive relationship narrative, in which case they will write a woman being punched as the ultimate signal that it's an abusive relationship. But, you know, you've got these action books where women are kicking and punching and they don't take hits. They maybe get knocked over or slammed into something. And then usually that is a precursor to the sexual violence because you've got, you know, the woman is on the ground and the male antagonist is, you know, standing over her and you imagine that vignette And I'm sure you can think of a hundred different things that you've read or watched in which that immediately devolves into sexual violence. Whereas if that was a male protagonist who is in that fight, 
and he gets knocked down and someone's standing over him, they're probably pulling out a knife or getting ready to kick him in the ribs or something like that. And it is such a stark contrast. We as Western writers are willing to rape women, but not punch them in the mouth. I just wanted to say there is a book that I read very recently um, that I'm trying to find out the release date of because it was an advanced copy, but it's by Casey Alexander. It's called Necrotech, and she has got an action-oriented female protagonist who does take punches and who, you know, is involved in a lot of physical violence without sexual violence. And when I was reading it, every single fight scene, I was tense and I was waiting for the sexual violence to happen. And I realized it was totally refreshing and different because there is no, you know, that, that shoe doesn't drop. Okay. Well, there you go. Recommendation. So that's right a recommendation. There. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, can you think of any examples where you've read instances of sexual violence against men in genre fiction? Oh, gosh. I mean... So Game of Thrones, I read a few years ago, and my I have a very bad memory, so please forgive me if I get this wrong. I hope you'll just take it right out. Um, but I believe that when Theon Greyjoy becomes Reek, he injures sexual violence, and it's written very, very differently from the sexual violence that the female characters endure. Um, I remember reading his chapter, and in you know in the chapters that discuss female sexual violence, sexual violence against women, you get a lot of detail. You get, you know, kind of this uh, voyeuristic perspective. And it's still written as being very terrible, but it's kind of, it's kind of standard. Um, and when you read about the sexual violence that Reek endures, it's almost coded. It t- talks about, you know, the, the mutilation of his genitals. It talks about him being forced to perform oral sex um, on a woman and it's just that was discussed in a way that when I was reading it, I was thinking, am I sure that what's being discussed is really happening here? I think it was handled much more delicately. In the sense that, that it becomes is, uh, euphemistic or is it just kind of um, mechanical? Um, I think a little of both, you know, if, if I recall correctly. And again, I haven't read this in a couple of years when Discussing his genital mutilation, I think it's very euphemistic. And then when discussing the actual forced uh, oral sex that he performs, I think it's just, I just remember reading it and thinking, I'm not sure that what's happening is happening, but I feel very uncomfortable and I feel very shaken. And I had to put the book down and walk away. Whereas in the descriptions of sexual assault against women, it's very kind of just uh, part of the scenery. Even as a reader, you've sort of normalized it because you've seen it so often. Exactly. And then the way that it's written, right? You've got, yeah. when, we're, when we're introduced to Daenerys, right, her brother is groping her. And it just is kind of, oh, and then that happened, and then they had a conversation. As opposed to this thing where, the narrative stops, everything stops so that you can look at this thing that's happening and say, this is really bad. I wonder, you know, how much um, sort of the nudity that happens when we're talking about on screen, 
pieces, you know, how much this feeds into it. Because obviously you see a lot, you see far more breasts than penises uh, on TV. And that's just kind of how (laughs) it's always been. I mean, I still remember um, when I first saw The Crying Game and it was the first Mm -hmm. penis I saw on on screen. And to be honest, it was the only one I'd seen on screen other than porn for a very long time. Yeah. Um it's always very shocking. Yeah, and it and it's bizarre, but we we completely, you know, female nudity. Oh yeah, that's just it's part of the course. Um you know, and I wonder if you know, you have these shows like Westworld and Game of Thrones where they have so much female nudity, but they have actually put in a little bit of male nudity. Um, mm-hmm. And even uh, Outlander as well showed us a little bit. But it's still, you know, in something, especially in Westworld, you see, um, you know, the the female hosts, like, full frontal naked, just sitting there a lot of the time. Whereas the men, you get glimpses, but they tend to be, you know, hidden behind trays or, you know, strategically placed objects. <laughs> and, right, right. <laughs> you know, it's it's like... Everyone's just a bit coy and a bit embarrassed. And yeah. this seems to be playing into it even more because you can't... It, it, I don't understand still what's so okay with seeing females nude, but not men. Yeah. I, mean, I think that there's a... It's kind of a, a double-edged thing. I think that on the one hand, we hear a lot that female bodies are beautiful, right? That's kind of... I think a pretty common refrain is like female bodies are desirable. Looking at female bodies is great. Look how sexy they are. Look how attractive they are. You know, throughout history and art, it's like, yes, boobs. Excellent. Great. Um, And then I think here frequently that they, their bodies are not intrinsically desirable the same way that female bodies are. Um, That's again, that toxic masculinity, men don't get complimented men don't get told that often that they're handsome and sexy the same way that women do. Unfortunately, you know, you take that all the way to where it is in our culture and it's that women are sex objects and men are not. They're instead allowed to be people. I think there's also in cinema, you know, nudity implies vulnerability. And so if all the women are naked all the time, they're not safe, right? They're, Hmm. accessible they're exposed and that's just how they have to be and I think it makes us kind of uncomfortable to see men nude on screen in the same way that it makes some people uncomfortable to see men cry where it's oh that's a vulnerability that you're not supposed to have you're not allowed to do that you have to be you know strong and held together and if you're going to take your dick out you just unzip your pants a little bit when we see men nude on screen we're seeing a vulnerability that we're used to only seeing from women. Do you think depicting sexual violence against women is ever okay in storytelling? And if so, you know, do you have some examples where this has been done in a way that you think is kind of acceptable? Or at least, you know, I'd, I'd say not just done because plot. You know, there's... <laughs> Oh, we want we want this woman to, to behave in this way, so we're going to make her be raped, and then she will go on and do something. Like if there's a an actual 
good uh, that sounds bad but a good reason for her to be so um <laughs> I, I know i know what you're getting at it's yeah. hard to find a way to phrase it um yeah i, I kind of struggle with that you know i wrote this article for tour.com and immediately people were coming out of the woodwork saying oh but someone gets raped in my book and it's okay right because reasons um and i can think of so many more situations in which i would say actually that's still being lazy then, oh, yeah, it's totally fine. But, Mm. you know, I'm not going to ever say that you shouldn't do something in any literature. There are tons of situations that you could write about in which sexual assault would be narratively appropriate. Um, I think that in a lot of parts of Game of Thrones, it's narratively appropriate and kind of reveals things about the world, right? Right. George R. R. Martin got a lot of accolades when he was writing Game of... Well, and he still is. Um, <laughs> has gotten a lot of accolades for Game of Thrones. I think rightly so, because he wrote a fantasy world that has the patriarchal problems of something grounded in reality. And, you know, he wrote the women in that world in such a way that they're interacting with that reality very uh, authentically where they know what their life has to be and they're finding ways to work within it. I wish that he didn't have so much rape, but you know, different strokes for different folks. Um, I'm trying to think of other, and I'm staring at my bookshelf right now. I'm trying to think of other novels that I've read in which I said, Oh yeah, that was really appropriate. Um, and I'm totally drawing a blank, but as a general rule, I, I don't think it's unreasonable to show sexual assault. I think that if you're using sexual assault as a way to titillate the reader or as a way to shape your female character and her as a character as opposed to just her story, then it's worth a second look. And it's worth asking yourself if that's really the best that you can do for that character's development. Not whether it's the nicest thing you can do, because as writers, we're rarely nice to our characters, um, but whether it's the best possible work that you can be putting into them and their development. You know, there's, there are a lot of people who want to use rape to show that someone had a bad childhood. And I don't think that's unreasonable. But again, it's, are you doing that because it's something that you've read a lot of and you think that it's what you're supposed to do in order to show that someone had a bad childhood? Or are you doing it because it's an important part of the character's development? Just like to leave it on a little bit of a happier note. <laughs> yes. Um, but. <laughs> yeah. So let's, let's uh, move on a little bit, but um Usually we ask our um, guests to kind of pitch their latest book or story or, you know, um, to our listeners. So your book, you said coming out in May. That's right. Yeah. May yeah. 23rd. If you just want to give us a little uh, pitch to uh, our listeners so that they know to why they should go and pre-order the book. Oh, my goodness. I would love to. <laughs> oh, that is a high note. <laughs> okay. So... River of Teeth is a novella duology, so there are going to be two novellas uh, coming out in 2017 as part of that series. And in the story, uh, 
takes place in the 1890s. This is a real true thing that happened in our country's history. Uh, we had a meat shortage in the early 20th century, and a brilliant man came into Congress and said the solution to our meat shortage is raising hippos for meat. They will eat the water hyacinth that's choking off our waterways. They'll be delicious. They'll feed a lot of people. It's a great plan. And this almost went through until some other guy came in and said, oh, by the way, hippos kill people all the time in Africa. Maybe we shouldn't bring them to our country. <laughs> in River of Teeth, I <clears throat> wrote a world in which that second man had never existed. And America farmed hippos for meat throughout the 1870s and 80s. And of course, if you're raising hippos for meat, you have to have hippo cowboys to handle them. River of Teeth is the story of those hippo cowboys trying to get feral hippos out of the Mississippi River. Uh, they are cutthroat. They are murderous. They are adventurous. And they run into some issues along the way. And I'm going to leave it at that so that people will buy the book and find out what happens next. Um, and I think they will, because that sounds absolutely fantastic. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Thank you. I really want to learn about hippo cowboys right now. <laughs> that just sounds bad. Oh, well, thank you so much for coming and talking to me today. Um, it's been thank really, you. really thank great. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Breaking the Glass Slipper. If you enjoyed this episode, please spread the word. Every little bit helps.